This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. You've been hearing me talk a lot about the University of Rhode Island's online cannabis certificate program. And with the legalization of recreational cannabis that went into effect last year, well, cannabis can open up doors for your career. Whether you're already in the industry or just wondering what is a pathway to break into the field, the University of Rhode Island has that program to help you become highly competitive in numerous areas of the cannabis industry. Fully accredited by URI's College of Pharmacy, the certificate program is 100% online and it can be completed in just two semesters. The next application deadline for the summer 2023 session is April 4th, coming right up. And courses start on May 9th. Learn more at uri.edu slash online slash cannabis or give them a call at 401-874-5280. Renee Hobbs is a communications professor at the University of Rhode Island and is behind an initiative called Courageous Rhode Island, which really takes on one of the major challenges of our time right now. And it's only evolved more and more as the concept of media has expanded well beyond what were traditional platforms like newspapers, television, radio, so on and so forth, and has really opened up where at the end of the day, anybody can serve as an information conveyor. If you want to use the term reporter, if you want to loosely use the term journalist, opinionator, editorialist, whatever the case may be. At any given point in time, anybody with a phone, anybody with access to the internet can become a documentarian and serve as an information provider. And that in league with the traditional media outlets creates quite an atmosphere. And the Courageous Rhode Island Project seeks to, as I understand it anyway, provide a more critical thinking-oriented lens when assessing media. So Professor Hobbs, thanks so much for hopping on. Happy to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So that intro there, is that pretty much a decent summary of what's happening? What I, th- what I appreciate about uh, the way you framed it is this idea that everyone can send and receive messages. And the traditional way we used to think about media in terms of gatekeepers is gone. That shift is radical and transformative. And we still don't fully understand it. We're living it, but we don't fully understand it. But one thing we know for sure is that everyone is a consumer and a creator, and everyone needs a set of knowledge and skills and habits of mind to to thrive in this kind of um, media-saturated society. No question about it. I think back to as a student at the University of Rhode Island, or maybe it was shortly thereafter, one of the Chomsky books that I came across really dove into this issue as a whole. And it's really when I started to think about, oh, well, you know, there's a human being and oftentimes a corporate or organizational interest behind every piece of media that's produced. It's not as if we have this untouchable, benevolent, you know, sort of uh, non-human creator out there that is all-knowing in terms of producing media. And that was a radical shift for me growing up. You know, you watch, for me, it was, you watch Channel 10, maybe you listen to the radio a little bit, read the Providence Journal. And I think things have shifted a lot in the last 20 years towards a more apparent bias, but it was always there. So why now and this juncture in 
American history and world history is extra important to have a program like Courageous Rhode Island. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I really appreciate how you reflected on your own experience uh, kind of coming to understand these ideas. I came from an era where Walter Cronkite told us, and that's the way it is, right? right? So even more reinforcing the just trust us because just trust us. Um, the ability to ask critical questions about what you watch, see, and read is actually um, empowering to your own autonomy, to coming to your own interpretation and recognizing the value of being able to be exposed to different points of view. In fact, you know what, even the Greeks a thousand, two thousand years ago in the ancient, ancient early literature on communication, right? They said, be exposed, come to the marketplace and be exposed to many different points of view and weigh and measure the validity, the credibility, the charisma of the speakers, the quality of the reasoning, the quality of the argument, and then come to make your own decision. That early conceptualization of democracy required that people do this uh, evaluation of the different messages. And so when people ask me, why is media literacy more important than ever? I say, well, it's all about democracy. If you want to continue democracy, then we all have to be able to do this. And not just once every four years, mm. we have to do this right routinely and as an ordinary part of daily life. Definitely. And it comes down to even at the most um, municipal, local level where the assessment of a zoning board hearing is re requires as much critical thinking as an assessment of perhaps a conflict playing out in Europe or of any other major global story. They both require that lens and they're both subjected to or they both can be subjected to the same human creation experience. That is a great observation. And ironically, it's because social media and digital media allow us to remove context, right? In the olden days, if you were going to go to that uh, hearing, that, you know, uh, water uh, board hearing, that school boards, you had to show up and be in the room where you got the full context of the discussion. But now it's possible to hear just a little snippet, just a little moment, and then to make your judgment and interpretation based on that little bit of nothing, mm. Right. And so in some ways, then this idea that we recognize as we're consuming media, that it's selective and incomplete. That's a key idea of media literacy. People say it's a game changer. When you, when you listen and watch and consume media with the idea that all media messages are selective and incomplete, then first of all, you calm down. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You don't Definitely. have to get so angry, right? Um, and it also ignites your intellectual curiosity because you, you're kind of like, well, what am I not hearing? What am I seeing? What's missing? Uh, and that actually is why we see media literacy as a as a mechanism of lifelong learning. I work with Dan York in the afternoons, and he has a really important point. He'll 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 make on uh, often, which is that objectivity in journalism is a goal, not a fact. And I think that's so important. And I, you know, I've seen that play out where, you know, somebody's reporting is, it's not intentional. It's not like the person says, okay, wait a minute, I'm going to, you know, 
do what I can to advance my own agenda here and discard facts or skew it towards really opinion-oriented work. In their mind, it's straight-up journalism, but it's oftentimes shaped by the experience of that reporter. It's oftentimes shaped by the experience of the editor, and it's oftentimes shaped by the consumer and how, like you said, how they interpret it. At this moment in time, which what is the what is the courageous Rhode Island project? What is the what is your media literacy campaign seeking to tell people to do? Not tell. It's that it sounds like you know there's an order, an edict coming down from the communications department at URI. But what's the goal of the project? Well, the goal of the project is to build a coalition of empowered people who recognize, analyze, and resist harmful forms of expression and communication that um, contribute um, to hate and ultimately to violence. Um, One way to illustrate what the dialogue and discussion experience is like is to tell you a story about what happened on Tuesday. Every other week, every Tuesday at 12 o'clock, from 12 to 1 or from 7 to 8 p.m. because we want to accommodate people's busy schedules and some people can come to the 12 o'clock, some people can come to the early evening program. On Tuesday, we critically analyzed a three-minute segment from the Today Show. And it was a story about a year ago, maybe you remember, the terrible murders in Buffalo where the white kid drove from far, far out in the suburbs into Buffalo and shot dead 10 people in in the grocery store. We looked at this three-minute clip. There was a lot going on in three minutes, right? It described the rise of white supremacist ideologies and the targeted attacks on synagogues, mosques, uh, Asian Americans being targeted. It then takes us to the victim. It then shows us the attorney general's claim that mm, white supremacist groups are contributing to violent extremism all over the country. And then when we got in small groups to discuss this piece and we started to ask, we started to ask, "Mm, how did they grab your attention? Uh, What values are presented? How might different people interpret this message differently and what's omitted? Somebody in my small group said, I noticed that three minutes is a long time on TV, you know. (laughs) Sure is. No mention of gun regulation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's interesting. I hadn't noticed it because I tend not to notice what's not there. But once you do, then you recognize that somebody made choices. And it's not about a value judgment. It's not about they made good choices or they made bad choices, although you're free to have a value judgment about that. It's the idea of recognizing the constructed nature of media messages. And doing that is a game changer for your identity as a consumer. But even more importantly, Bill, because you're now a creator, because every time you click like or share, you are part of the media system yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so it makes you think these kind of conversations, they don't, we're not telling anybody what to think. We're actually demonstrating this process of how these critical questions open up more clarity about your own interpretations. And then a greater sense of responsibility about how you participate in disseminating and sharing and creating content yourself. Mm. That's such a fascinating way of thinking of it as well, that just by participating in social media, you're feeding an algorithm and you're sort of endorsing or dismissing a piece of content and you're taking an active role 
even if it's as simple as, like you said, hitting the like button or the heart on Instagram or whatever it is, that's a powerful, that's something I've never thought of before. And and it's it's so true that you feed the beast when you're a consumer now in a way that obviously before you had the power of subscription, you had the power of sharing the newspaper, talking about it at you know, some social event, hey, did you see this story or whatever it is? But now that is enhanced in a way that can be really important in terms of getting out important information, but it also can conflate opinion and fact very quickly. Great point. And, you know, the uh, the fact is that um, media makers know how to ar- arouse my strong emotion. Hmm. I have issues that when I see or I see them and I I get exposed to them, it makes my heart race or I feel that ah, oh, uh, and I my impulse is to want to share that with if I'm angry or if I'm happy or if I love that uh, message, I want to share it. That's a natural human impulse, but it gets it gets sidetracked right when it gets exploited. Um, and I think when people are aware of that, they're more aware of how media makers activate your strong emotion, uh, simplify information, appeal to your deepest values, and sometimes even attack opponents as a way to create an in-group and an out-group. Once you see how what strategies are used to do that, then you have a lot more freedom to choose whether you want to participate in that or you want to reject that. Mm. And something else, an example I saw was uh, it's it's presenting information or framing a story from uh, the perspective of the interests behind the distribution of that story. You know, look, Channel 10 here in Rhode Island has been through a lot of changes and there's still some amazing people inside that organization. They do a great job here, WJAR. I mean, I'm not going to name them off. I think people know who they are. And uh, if if you don't, then you'll find if you watch the newscast or if you watch or visit their website that's it's loaded with great stuff and there's some really soulful smart careful people there at the same time they're owned by Sinclair and what was interesting to me um recently was on turn2ten.com there was a story that what the headline was uh chain business chain restaurant businesses are concerned about what unionization is going to do to their businesses. And it presented the story as if, you know, oh, geez, you know, as Starbucks and other chains are starting to see shop by shop unionization, it presented the idea of, oh, geez, you know, this is terrible for business. You know, if these unions get a hold, then, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have problems with the organization. Well, no kidding. That's the whole point of a union is to take back that power. But there it is, this national Sinclair story mixed in with, you know, hey, it's going to snow tomorrow and this car accident happened and here's what the governor said and it's just presented la-di-da and people will read that and some people will go, oh, geez, you know, I heard that you know, Starbucks might go out of business or something like that if, they, you know, if they're allowed to unionize. It, there's no story explaining working conditions at Starbucks, salaries, tips, the Elmwood in Buffalo the first Starbucks to to unionize. Why it's why unionization has been the defining characteristic of upward mobility in global North society for however long. 
it's just there. And you read it and you go, well, of course, Sinclair, this giant corporation that leans right and has obviously a major player in the business sector, of course, they're going to spin the story their way. That's concerning as well because it's just dumped right there in the midst of the very good work of local reporters. What I really love about that story, Bill, is that that story explains the depth of this media literacy question, who is the author and what is the purpose? When people first encounter that and they start to analyze, they think about the reporter, they think about the on-camera talent, right? They think about the people that we recognize as authors. But Authorship is also all the layers of the institutions that employ these media professionals, right? And they're authors too. And Sinclair has a First Amendment right to put any point of view they want because that's what the First Amendment does. It gives them that freedom to choose what news, what stories, what points of view to include, and what points of view to omit. But it's on us as media consumers to be aware that the author isn't just the talent who reads the news, isn't just the producer who uh, who writes it. It's actually a whole uh, uh, institutional business model uh, behind it. And that's why understanding more about media businesses is a important um, uh, media literacy, uh, it's a, an area of knowledge. Over the 11 sessions of our program, we get to dig into a lot of very cool topics. We're going to tackle propaganda. We're going to look at um, medical disinformation and misinformation. Um, but we're definitely going to uh, address this issue of how to recognize the sort of way in which um, corporate and institutional ownership uh, is shaping the media. And we're seeing it right now in the debates about content moderation. Elon Musk has taken over Twitter and he's got some ideas about what will what Twitter will 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 put forward and where it, it will draw the line. And that's its that's its it's it has the obligation and the freedom to do that. We just want people to be aware that those choices are happening institutionally all mm -hmm. the time and everything that they watch, see and read. You mentioned medical information, disinformation, malinformation. Oh boy. I mean, after the pandemic, look, and it's it was interesting as someone who covered the pandemic every single day, you know, you'd have to start to ask some serious questions. For example, it kind of went both ways at one point. I mean, we have these people out there that are completely, you know, no masks at all work, you know, no, the vaccine is you're going to get a microchip. You know, this is just some new world order type situation. At the same time, there was a time at the beginning of the pandemic where there was, well, you, you don't really need a mask. And if you look into it, well, there's a mask shortage. Perhaps that's why they're saying this. Well, the cloth mask will do well. Then you look at studies and you go, oh, geez, I don't know. Then all of a sudden they're going to close down the parks and and it's it's almost like both sides of that were so back and forth and there was such an extreme position on people were digging into their their side of the covid storyline to such an extent that there were people who genuinely believed that it was completely artificial or that it was exaggerated and you know you, you look at it and you go okay the 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 Di the the distribution of information from the local level and from the federal level was inconsistent 
And that created a, a starting point that although it was obviously a brand new situation, no one really knew what to do at that point in time. And you have to be able to discern that as well. You got to a point where seeds uh, uh, were sown of d- distrust. And now we're in this environment where we already had the oh, the fake news. Donald Trump comes along and, you know, there's obvious bias in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and, you know, whatever it is, it's it, that environment already existed. It seems like in the wake of covid, we've entered into this new era where there are people who literally would believe that anybody who pushed any kind of safety measures from a covid standpoint is in concert with, you know, Somebody who wants to take over the world, have one language, one currency, and you know everybody is a, a some kind of slave. And then on the other hand, anybody who, um, you know, had any any doubt about anything that was being said in terms of COVID precautions is some kind of you know far alt right, off the reservation type maniac that just wants to see you know a libertarian type of society. And it's almost like we have no middle ground, and it makes it that much more challenging to assess things. And now you've really what a beautiful what a beautiful way to describe why we why we're so excited about Courageous RI, why we're so optimistic about its potential positive impact on our community and why and the magnitude. I think you you your your analysis underlines the magnitude of this issue. In a climate of uncertainty where changing changing on the ground realities uh, are unknown, where a new phenomenon is happening and nobody understands it. People want certainty because when we have fear, we want something to hold on to. Nobody was able to provide that during the pandemic, mm. right? And then we have this reality that as we get new knowledge, our understanding changes over time. So what might have been true at one point of time isn't true six months, nine months, a year later, because new knowledge has been gained, new understanding. The, the reality is changing. So that can be very destabilizing uh, when people are feeling anxiety about their health, about their family, about their loved one. So of course, that is an opportunity for demagogues. That is an opportunity to step forward and say, I, you can trust me. I will solve your problems. Don't believe anybody else. Just believe me. Throughout human history, we can see that in other periods of time when there was uncertainty and anxiety, that demagogues stepped in to fill that void and 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 it and it provided comfort for people who need that certainty. And it also created and intensified the partisanship and division leading actually historically as we understand it to civil war. Mm-hmm. So the pandemic reality is we're still living in a world where we don't know how it will play out. What we know for sure from history is that increasing partisanship will lead to civil war, Yeah, right? And that is just a historical reality based on um you know, the eons of human history. So what can we do to repair that? What can we do to find common ground, to figure out how we can deal with living in a world full of uncertainty where multiple actors have different motives for creating conflict? Because, you know, there are 
there's a there's a business model for conflict, isn't there, Bill? There sure is. It's a business model for profit, profiting from people's uncertainty. There's a business model for uh, a, a radicalization. And I feel like the more we're all aware of that, the more we can look to resist it and to help others resist it. Mm. So well said. This is such an important project. Naturally, some of the people who have deemed this as, you know, harmful to society. And there have been some, I don't even want to call them outlets, but going back to what I said at the top, you know, I'm somebody who's lived entirely in the independent media world and works with a, you know, publicly traded billion dollar company and also in public media at PBS. So I kind of have this weird trifecta. I can kind of see all the things that are happening and throughout the course of a day. And, you know, so there was an independent outlet here that is, you know, I call them alt-right. I think, you know, they, they, they do Wuhan Wednesday, you know, this you know, guy's kind of says he's a you know, former doctor or something like that talks about anti-masks and all that. And they, they were, they bombarded you, you know, they blasted you with, Oh, you know, you're dangerous. You're out of control. And I read that and went, yeah, that sounds predictable. It seems about right because they want to dispel any notion of critical thinking so that they can get away with some of the nonsense that they put out there and scare people with. And so I, I applaud your work. I think it's excellent. And where can people find out about the upcoming events and listen to the content you've created? Yeah, thanks so much. And thank you for kind words. It's a project that takes all of us. And by coming on this show, I get the opportunity to invite your uh, listeners to join us at CourageousRI.com. Our next event is on April 4th, and it's called High Conflict. And what we're doing is we're talking about the conflict that happens in our families, the conflict that's kept our Uncle Monty away from the Thanksgiving table, the conflict that has come at us in the home um, because there are things that we can do to repair some of that damage. And I feel like um, some of the ideas in the Courageous RI series are about big, big issues like media industry and, um, you know, propaganda and politics. And some of the programs in the series are about the small stories about what we can do in our home and in our family and in our workplace. So I encourage your listeners to join us on Tuesday, April 4th for High Conflict. Come for the noon program, come for the uh, seven program. Bill, we like to say that people don't even have to cross a bridge to come to this program because it's all on Zoom and you'll get a chance to meet new people, make a new friend, have a, 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 a courageous conversation. Yeah, well, I look forward to joining you at some of those. And Renee Hobbs, URI. Thanks so much for your work and thanks for hopping on the show today. Right back at you, my friend. Thanks a lot. CCA Health Rhode Island, Commonwealth Care Alliance, or CCA, is a multi-state integrated care system influencing innovative models of complex care nationwide. CCA Health's Uncommon Care model focuses on sustainable and evidence-based healthcare breakthroughs that improve the health and well-being of people with significant needs and is consistently recognized as one of the best models in the country at identifying and serving traditionally hard-to-reach individuals. CCA is excited to bring uncommon care to Rhode Islanders with a range of Medicare Advantage plans. Learn more by visiting commonwealthcarealliance.org backslash Rhode Island.